If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul has just charged Pastor Timothy in the first chapter to defend the gospel, the gospel that Paul had given the church in Ephesus. He wants the pastor, Timothy, to defend this gospel, to correct false teachers. And after this admonition to Timothy, he transitions now in chapter 2, explaining to Timothy what the church should look like. The false teachers had incorrectly assumed that the church family should be maybe insular and less inclusive than the gospel actually is. More than anything, he says that the church should be a place of prayer. They should be a people of prayer. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let me get to 1 Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. We come to you, dear God, asking for help. As sheep are often slow to understand the shepherd, we pray that you would enable us to understand the words we have read this morning. Indeed, that your word would be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it would pierce between joints and marrow all the way to our hearts, and that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is God's Vast plan of redemption. We'll talk about the text, verses 1 through 7, seven, and how Paul envisions the great expansive growth of God's kingdom. Then we're going to actually stop and talk about how to read the Bible correctly, hermeneutics, if you will, before we close. Again, reflecting on God's wonderful plan of redemption. First, let's look at the text. Look at verse 1. 
First of all, I urge that prayers and supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Remember, one of the biggest problems that the early church faced were what Paul calls Judaizers. These Jews who were converted to Christianity, who were in the churches, the early churches, and they were in every early church, and they wanted people to become more Jewish. They thought if you came to Christ, you would actually become, for the most part, Jewish. Jewish in your outlook, Jewish in your following of the laws, the Old Testament laws. And remember, too, the Jews considered themselves to be the seed, the seed, the only people that God actually kind of cared about. Now, of course, this isn't what Scripture teaches, but by this time, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, had a thought that they actually were the only ones. And you remember Jesus even on earth when he was here. He said, yes, I have come to the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. You see, Jesus and Paul and the apostles, they, they kind of blew this whole perspective up that God really only cared about the Jewish people, the actual physical descendants of Abraham. They said, no. No, it's always been that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Christ. From Genesis, Genesis 12, which we read, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, we see this. In the law of God, there are many, many stipulations for the worship of Gentiles. Gentiles coming to worship the one and true God. But they would worship in Jerusalem. They would worship as Jewish people. Even in the temple, we see that there is a court of Gentiles. God's scope was always much greater than just the sons and daughters of Abraham, the physical descendants. The plan was always that all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues would be brought into the line of Abraham and worship the one true God. But the Judaizers, it seems, resisted this notion. They resisted this notion that it was actually this expansive and this inclusive And this was the biggest theological problem, one of the biggest theological problems that the early church faced. Is the early church going to be Jewish or is it going to be something different? The radical expansion of the gospel family of God was certainly much, much bigger than than the Judaizers could anticipate. And this is what Paul is trying to correct here in worship. He's saying, first of all, pray for all people. It's not just about your church, your little family. The, the people who you know who might be good in this church, Paul says no. Not just Christians, not just your brothers. Pray for all people. For all people. And as we said, Paul's not meaning every single person in the world, somehow finding a list of every person in the world and praying for every single person in the world. This will become important later. Paul means all kinds of people, and we see that in verse 2, don't we? For kings and all who are in high positions. So this is a radical shift from the exclusive view of the Judaizers. And remember, the Jews hated the Romans. They occupied Jerusalem. They occupied Israel. They were oppressive. And Paul's saying, no, even pray for them. Pray for the kings. Who are the kings? The Romans. Pray for all those in high positions. Who are they? They're Romans. This is a radical shift from the exclusive nature of the gospel as viewed by the Jewish people. God loves the world. 
not the Jews only, the world. So, we should pray for all people. Why? He says in verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God. That's why. It pleases God that we pray for all people, especially those who might persecute us. Again, I'm rehashing some things we talked about previously. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It pleases God when we pray for all kinds of people, even kings who might persecute us. We pray not just for them to rule justly, we pray for their salvation. Because it's God's plan to save all kinds of people, a vast multitude from all tribes and nations, peoples and tongues, social strata, position. So we pray for all people. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jews and Gentiles are saved by the same exact God. They're saved by the same Jesus Christ, the same mediator. Jews and Gentiles both come to God only through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point. Jesus didn't come as a ransom only for Jewish people. He came as a ransom for the world. And yet this is the sticking point, isn't it? This is where the Judaizers in the in the churches, all of the churches in the New Testament, this is where they failed. The idea that the Jewish Messiah would be for all the world. They didn't really believe it. And secondly, that you could come to Christ without becoming like a Jew. They didn't really know it. Indeed, there was a council discussing that very question in Acts chapter 15. It's described where all the churches basically came to Jerusalem and said, do these new converts to Christ need to become Jewish, basically? And the answer was no. So Paul closes this section of Scripture saying that the evidence that all types of people should be prayed for is that he had been appointed an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the final evidence. God actually raised up an apostle and sent him to the Gentiles. And that's Paul. He says, for this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. He's talking to the Jews, isn't he? He's like, really? This happened. God raised an apostle and sent them to Gentiles. And that's me. So the gospel call is for everyone. It's for all kinds of people. For all. Before I close this point, I want you to see something that's pretty neat. In the Greek text, in the first six verses, Paul uses the word all six times in rapid succession. All, 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 all. And in the whole rest of the letter to Timothy, I don't think he uses the word all that many times at all. But the point is to drive home this point that all people, all people should be prayed for. We should desire the salvation of all people. Verse 1, first of all, Verse 1, pray for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 2, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. 
Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, God sent His Son as a ransom for all. This repetition is to force home the theological point. It's not an insular community. The plan of redemption is expansive. It's for all kinds of people. And His church, God's church, should be a missional family. We have a mission. We desire all kinds of people, all people to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's mission was to save the world. And that's our mission as well. Not just Jews. So Paul specifically and forcefully addressing this error that had risen in the Ephesian church. So this is the main thrust of the text. But there's something more in this text that we should discuss. Why? Because this verse, verse 4 and verse 6, taken as a whole, these verses are one of three texts that are used by those who oppose the doctrine of election. What do I mean by election? Well, Paul defines it for us in Ephesians 1 and 2. Again, Ephesians was written to the same church that Timothy pastors. And in Romans 8 and 9 and many, many other places. But these are the most clear explanations of the doctrine of election. What does it mean? When we say election, we mean that before the creation of the world, God chose whom He would save. He plucked them from the fire. Salvation is from the Lord. It's a choice that's solely based on God's divine mercy and grace. Period. Not on anything that he foresaw in the people whom he chose. Not in any good decisions that he saw that they might make. Apart from any effort or work on their part, God chose to save some. But here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says that God desires all men to be saved. So is Paul contradicting himself? This is the question I want to address. How could this be? We've already addressed the issue kind of obliquely, just looking at the context of the letter. You know that it means all kinds of people. But if you didn't have good instruction, you might be tempted to think that God is contradicting Himself. Is this what Paul is doing? Is he using this letter to Timothy to kind of modify or change what he's written in Romans about God's plan of redemption, about salvation. Well, what we first need to understand before tackling this question in detail is how to read the Bible. So this is the second thing we're going to talk about is how you interpret these kinds of scriptures. I remember when I first learned to play baseball, I was a very confused about how to get folks out. Like I wanted to get the runners out. How do you do it? Do you have to tag them with the ball? Do you have to just tag the base? Sometimes the ball would pop up and the runner would be out without anyone doing anything. The ball just went in a certain spot and the runner's out. Sometimes the runner was out because he just kind of ran funny, ran in the wrong spot. Then he was out. So I was a kid wondering, well, what is it? Do I have to tag? I just started tagging everyone. Like, I didn't, on the base or not, I'm going to tag you. I was very confused. In the same way, you need to know the principles of studying the Scripture if you're going to understand 
the scriptures accurately. Just like you need to know the principles of baseball to know what to do to get the runners out, you need to know the principles of reading and studying scripture. Of interpretation, this is called hermeneutics, how to read and interpret scripture. And it's not just I that need to know this. We all need to know some basic rules for interpretation. And that's what we're going to talk about for a moment. Because it is my proposition that those who would think that this verse somehow changes the rest of the the Bible's teaching on election, they're just not interpreting the Scripture rightly. And I'm not saying that in a proud or arrogant way. I really think that it becomes evident when we look at the right hermeneutic. First, I want to talk about some bad hermeneutics. These are some of the more radical examples. They're slightly humorous. The first hermeneutic that I want to discuss that's just horrible, and some people actually have this, have this hermeneutic as part of their life, is the life verse hermeneutic. Life verse. Like a life verse guides your whole life. On the Trinity Broadcasting Network, Don't watch that, by the way, full of error and heresy. But anyway, I did happen to watch it at one time. This is a real event that happened on live TV. There was a guest who was explaining that his whole ministry was defined by his life verse. His life verse was Matthew 19.26. With God, all things are possible. That sounds good. I mean, I would like that life verse, I guess. With God, all things are possible. And then he said, God gave me that verse, Matthew 19, 26, because I was born in 1926. And the host said, oh, well, I, I want a life verse. I was born in 1934. So he turned to Matthew 19, and he went down, and uh-oh, there's no verse 34. And then he said, I'll try Mark. And he flipped to Mark. And there's not 19 chapters in Mark. And he's still undeterred. So he goes to Luke. And he goes to Luke 19. And oh, there is a verse 34. And this is all on live TV. This is all happening real time. He said, I was born in 1934. Luke 19.34 says, The Lord hath need of him. And he said, The Lord has need of me. Praise God. Hallelujah. And the whole crowd is cheering. The audience is clapping loudly. And he's saying, hallelujah, praise God, the Lord has need of me. And his wife is sitting right next to him and she says, wait, honey, you can't use this life verse. It's talking about a donkey. (laughs) Of course, it reflects the ridiculous nature of this particular hermeneutic. It's a bad way to read scripture, right? The other one, I mean, you may have heard this as well, the random finger on the page hermeneutic or just the flip the Bible open and see what it says hermeneutic. There was a man who was in need of guidance about a major decision, and he prayed that God would just allow him to open his Bible with his eyes closed and just put his finger down, and God would give him guidance, the guidance that he needed. So he prayed, and he opened his Bible to Matthew 27, 5. Judas went out and hanged himself. He thought, oh no, that can't be God. He closed it and he prayed harder and he tried again and it flopped open to Luke and he read Luke 10.37. Go thou and do likewise. And he said, no, no, no. And he prayed a little harder and he opened it up one more time. John 13.27. What thou doest, do quickly. 
Was God speaking to him? Well, maybe, but hopefully we can all see that this is not how we discern the texts of Scripture. These are silly and foolish ways to approach the Holy Word of God. How should we interpret the Scriptures? First of all, we study diligently like Bereans. We ingest the Word of God every day. We study and we pray. 2 Timothy 2.15 in the NAS. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You present yourself to God. You study hard the Scriptures. It's diligent study and prayer. But you still need to know how to study. How do I interpret these texts that I'm reading? This is called hermeneutics. And we all need a right method for reading and understanding the Bible. Now I'm going to give you two presuppositions, two kind of ways to guide your thinking, and then I'm going to give you five quick principles that will help you study the Bible. First of all, the first presupposition, you need the Holy Spirit. You need help. No matter how many times you've read the Scriptures, you need help. You need to pray that God opens your eyes. Secondly, you need to remember that the message of the Scripture is consistent. Why do I say that? Because there's one author, isn't there? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, all of it, and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all God-breathed. It's all breathed out by God. So it cannot contradict itself. Five principles for studying the Scriptures. First, determine the context of the passage that you're reading. Read a few chapters ahead. Read a few chapters behind. Figure out what the context is. What is the author communicating to the people who are reading it? And see if you can use the Scripture in question in the context that it was intended. That's first. Secondly, don't personalize or allegorize the text without warrant. Again, you're going to laugh and think this is outrageous, but this actually happened. There was a young man who wanted to marry a woman in church. And in this particular church, more charismatic in nature, the pastor was talking about the Israelites marking, marching around the walls of Jericho. They marched around on the last day seven times. And then the walls fell down. And he said, if there's a stronghold in your life, if there's something you're really stressed about, you need to walk around the walls of that place, if it's a place, and pray. Now, prayer is always good, but certainly this isn't what the text is describing. So this young man who really wanted to date and marry this one particular girl, he snuck out to her house at night and marched around her house seven times praying. And then he felt a great peace. And the next week he told the girl, I marched around your house seven times and God told me that we should be married. And she said, okay, I'm not going to contradict God. And they were married and their marriage was horrible. He personalized this text 
unnecessarily and without warrant. And really, we in our culture are all tempted to do this. Like, the story of David and Goliath is somehow about you destroying your giants. Well, there certainly are principles that we can glean from this narrative of David killing the giant. But it wasn't written for you to think you have giants that you will conquer using some small pebble or some rock. It was about the glory of God being displayed to the Israelite people. So don't personalize or allegorize the text without proper warrant. Thirdly, determine the genre of your text. Determine the genre of what you're reading. Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it end times stuff? Is it narrative? Is it an epistle like Timothy? Is it a letter? Is it straight theology? You say, well, I just want to interpret the Bible as literally as possible. Amen. So do I. But you interpret literal scriptures that are meant to be taken literally. And if not, you don't take them literally. We're told that God hides us under the shadow of His wings. Does God have wings? Is that literally true? No. Right? It's a figure of speech. You determine the genre. And you read in light of that genre because the genre helps the meaning and the application. Fourthly, understand the difficult passages by looking at more clear passages on the same topic. In Second Peter, this is actually kind of humorous. Paul is being discussed by Peter. And Peter says, Paul's writing is difficult. It's easily twisted by the unlearned as they do the other scriptures to their destruction. Peter acknowledges that Paul's writing is Scripture. And he also acknowledges that Paul writes hard stuff. So what do you do? You interpret Scripture with Scripture. When you come to a difficult text, you ask yourself, is there a part of Bible that talks about this very clearly that I can use to guide my interpretation of this more difficult text? And if there is, you do that. And finally, seek godly counsel. If you're really bent around the axle about something, you cannot figure it out. Don't despair. God has appointed shepherds whose sole job in life is to study the Scriptures. This is my honor and this is my great privilege to be studying Scripture all day long. My neighbors think I'm crazy because I'm always out on the porch reading. They're like, wow, you read a lot. Like it's some pleasure cruise or something. No, this is my job. To study the scriptures. So don't get your final answer from the internet while ignoring the shepherd God has given you. When Timothy is told by Paul that the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, it's not because they're somehow super special. It's not because I have this wonderful, important thing and you better honor me. The point is that there is so much more at stake than just me teaching something. This is God's Word. There's a lot to be messed up here. And if they're laboring well, that means they're laboring. It's hard work. I don't want your honor. I want your prayers. That's what I want. So let's apply these principles to this verse. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Does it really teach that God wills that all humans will be saved? Is that what it's saying? Well, what are the options for understanding this phrase? 
God desires all men to be saved. Option one, that God has sovereignly decreed that every human being who has ever lived and breathed be saved. That's option one. If you just read it very woodenly, without any context, if you just rip this out of the page and put it on the wall, you could come to this conclusion. God sovereignly decrees the salvation of every human who has ever lived, and so they are all saved. This is called universalism. Nobody believes this. Not even liberal theologians, not very many, believe that God has decreed the salvation of every human being. Why is that? Because we know that some are not saved. So in light of that truth, in light of the fact that some are not saved, we have some other options. Number two, that God has willed the salvation of every human who ever lived, but something prevented his will. Something overshadowed his will. He's not omnipotent. He's not as omnipotent as we thought. Well, I don't like this either. Obviously, we serve the omnipotent God. Nothing he desires does not come to pass. Thirdly, there's another option. God truly wishes that everyone would be saved, but it's not his biggest priority. He really wills that everyone is saved, but he has another will that's much higher than that. And speaking of God's will being somehow uniform, there's no uh, deviation in his will. Yes, we could see that this is a problem as well. He's conflicted. He's got one will, but another will that's greater. Let's talk about some good options. God's will is described in different ways through Scripture, and one of those is known by this title, the will of His disposition. It explains what He loves, the will of disposition. Ezekiel 18.23 is His will of disposition. Have I any pleasure... In the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. His will of disposition shows that he doesn't take any pleasure that anyone would perish. This could be part of what is going on in 1 Timothy 2. When Paul writes that he desires all men to be saved, he could be just reflecting God's will of disposition. He doesn't want, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone but that they would repent. And this is valid. This is a valid thought. But I still think the thrust of the passage is not explaining God's disposition toward the lost, but the extent, the vast growth that was prophesied throughout all the ages of his family. St. Augustine wrote this, This can't mean that God wills the salvation of every human being. For God accomplishes all his will, but doesn't save all mankind. Rather, all men refers to people from every kind and category, kings and subjects, rich and poor, learned and uneducated, women and men, young and old, just as Paul calls for prayer for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. And this is what we've been saying this entire time. The meaning of the passage, God desires all to be saved in 1 Timothy 2, in its context, shows that Paul isn't claiming God's desire for every human who's ever lived to be saved. Just as he isn't advocating in the previous verse that we pray for every single person who's ever lived in the entire world. 
all is being used because it indicates all types of people, reflecting the vast expansion of the kingdom of God that came after Christ. It pleases God to save all kinds of people. And this has always been His plan. So no, He's not correcting His doctrine in Romans or in Ephesians 1 and 2. He's not changing anything. He's making another point. The church needs to focus on all people. The gospel is big. And all kinds of people should come into it. The church should evangelize and pray for all people. Even our enemies, we should pray for them. This is a proper hermeneutic of this passage. Next week and the following weeks, we're actually going to use this as a springboard and we're going to talk specifically about election. What does the Bible teach? It's, it's a difficult subject. And it's one that's avoided by most churches, I would imagine. We're going to talk about election. What does the Bible teach? And actually, we're going to talk about all the doctrines of grace in the weeks following. The conclusion is it's more glorious and expansive than we could ever realize God's plan of redemption is grand. The gospel is grand in its scope. Jesus Christ came to save all kinds of sinners. The gospel is for everyone. So you, each one of you, need to shine the light of Christ to all people. To share the good news of the gospel with all people. That they might know the hope that you have. It's the last verse in Romans 9, I'll tell you how you should think. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. May everyone who meets you say this of you. How beautiful are the feet of you who brought me good news. When you think of the gospel, think of all those whom God has put in your sphere of influence. Let us pray. Our good and great God, our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that what the original Jews of Abraham, what they thought about your Messiah... And your kingdom was so much bigger than they could have ever imagined. Lord, that now all Gentiles who have faith in Christ are grafted into the family of God. What an amazing and lovely truth. And someday we will all be together in heaven from every tribe and people and nation and tongue and praise the name of Jesus. Crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and seated on the throne. Lord, we thank You that all kinds of people, truly from every corner of this globe, from every strata, from every demographic, all kinds of people will be in heaven. For this pleases You, that You would save all people. We thank You. We praise You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.